Hello, I'm Harry. Hello, I'm Rory, and you're listening to Games on Film. Welcome back to, I was going to say welcome back to Raccoon City, but it's not called welcome back to Raccoon City, it's called welcome to Raccoon City. But that's beside the point. This is Games on Film, the podcast that celebrates video game movies. And it's episode 90, and we're back with our quarterly, I suppose, Resident Evil episodes. The new live action movie though, isn't it, Rory? That's right. As long-term listeners of the podcast will know... There are a lot of Resident Evil movies and spin-offs and all sorts, and particularly myself, I am a Resident Evil aficionado. I wouldn't call myself an expert. I'm just, uh, I guess it's my kind of like go-to franchise. It's the one where I will be interested in the main installments. I won't necessarily play every single one because I still haven't played Resident Evil 6 because that demo was bad. Um, <laughs> but... I will play most of the Resident Evil games and... Cos- cosplayers Jill Valentine. No, not quite. <laughs> yeah, Resident Evil 5 Jill Valentine with the purple wetsuit or whatever. What, um, does Resident Evil fans, do they have a, a nickname like Whovians or Trekkies? Um, or... I'm going to say no because I think I'd be aware. This is kind of a leading question for you to create. I don't now. know. Biohazard Heads? <laughs> the, the Mr. X's? Umbrella carriers. <laughs> Umbrella fellas. But that's only for the guys. For the gals, there'll be the... the... <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> but this is, a, this is a film that's a long time coming for us, isn't it? Because, um, especially for me, because as I've mentioned a few times in the uh, previous episodes, um, I know the director... I think our friendship status is is more like Facebook is absolutely Facebook <laughs> friends now. But so the director Johannes Roberts, I want to cast, I want you to cast your minds back to like two thousand and whatever. And I think our dad was working in Southampton, and he brought back a I think it was a newspaper, and he said you like you want to do film and you want to do that sort of thing. These guys are making a horror film in Southampton, and this was back before the internet. Somehow I ended up finding his phone number. I can't even remember how <laughs> I did that. But I found the director's phone number and I gave him a call. And I said, this is really cool. Because at that time, the British film industry was just making gangster movie, gangster movie, gangster movie. It was all like the fallout of Guy Ritchie and Lock Stock. And I think all the people, I think I was at college at the time, and all the people wanting to make films wanted to be the new Lock Stock, the new Guy Ritchie. And I was really into horror and Dawn of the Dead. And I said, let's, oh, you know, I, was just, I was just saying, I don't even think I was calling for, for a job, but I was like, this is really cool. And he said, oh, that's cool. Do, do you want to like help out on some reshoots? And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to, do you know, have you held a boom mic before? And I went, yeah. And then I remembered after the call that I'd held an umbrella 
on a film shoot, <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a TV shoot, because I did some work experience. But anyway, cut to... Same principle. Same principle. A few weeks later, they're doing reshoots. Reshoots um, funded by uh, Uri Geller, of all people. And this was uh, Johann, um, Johanna's first film, uh, Sanatorium. Sanitarium. Uh, is it sanitarium or sanatorium? I Let's think pull it... the whole thing off. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they're doing reshoots because the film's plot didn't make a whole lot of sense. So these uh, scenes were where Uri Geller was playing a character called Male Detective. And I think there's a female detective as well. And they were asking the main character what had happened basically during the film. <laughs> and they, they had to sort of set it years later because I'm assuming they couldn't get the original actor who played the protagonist in the main bulk of the film. So this is like an older guy. I don't want to bog this whole podcast down in like tales of my time on these, on, on Johanna's early films, but there's a lot of them. And like a year later, I was helping out on another film, driving kind of actors around Southampton. Like Darren Day was there. Dominic Pinon from like Alien Resurrection, um, Amelie Delicatessen, he was there. I just got this vivid memory of reading a Total Film magazine, and I think it had features on the upcoming Lord of the Rings trilogy and upcoming first Spider-Man film, and like crew members being like, Tommy McGuire won't make a good Spider-Man, what the fuck? And oh, an American playing Frodo, what are they thinking of? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Johan is, is committed to horror and he's been doing horror like throughout his career and i just remember sort of washing blood off a ceiling once because we'd sprayed it all over the underside of an underpass and you know fun fun times um so naturally i've watched his career with a bit of interest and i think he himself would admit he's uh his quality has been very much up and down and the last time i saw him though i mean when i say quality like the the film i worked on with the underpass was a like a typical killer clown slasher movie called Hellbreeder. Um, he's also done a film called like Forest of the Damned, which I, I read. Uh, just reminding of myself of a synopsis. I think some people go into these woods where there's naked bisexual vampire women, and all I just remember stumbling upon these photos of just just naked ladies looking really <laughs> cold in the woods with vampire teeth. And I just thought, oh, God, poor ladies. But that film featured, I think, Tom Savini, the um, special effects whiz, like zombie effects whiz. But the last time I met Johannes, I think it was for his um, one of his birthdays, and he invited loads of people to the Prince Charles Cinema to see his new film called 47 Meters Down, which was uh, the film where... Uh, some two sisters are in a shark cage which falls to the bottom of the sea and they have to swim to the surface and I have to admit when I went to go I was like I can't remember the last time I liked any of Johannes's films (laughs) (laughs) but this one was freaking terrifying because you basically have these scenes when these women are trying to swim 47 meters up from the cage and there's just a tiny figure in the middle of the frame and all around is the chasm of blue. And you think this shark could come from anywhere. <laughs> and I think, unfortunately, I think there's a film called The Shallows, which came out like a year before or something. And I think I think it's one of those things where somebody thought, 
it was a ripoff or something but you know it was like shark movies that's original <laughs> but um anyway all, all i guess in a roundabout way is what i'm trying to say is that um i was happy to report the last time i'd seen one of his films um really enjoyed it and oh no no i tell a lie sorry i've seen strangers prey at night which was a mm. sequel a delayed sequel to the strangers gonna be honest here didn't think much of it <laughs> <laughs> but I also follow a lot of horror um, websites and it's got a really respectable response from those guys. And there's, there is a fantastic sequence when a man is being chased around a pool by an axe-welding maniac uh, played to um, a total eclipse of the heart. And you can find that scene online. And it's absolutely fantastic. And again, I know juxtaposing a classic song with something inappropriate, like someone being axed in the back <laughs> is a, yeah. is not a fresh thing to do. It's like, Oh, wow. Wow. Music, which doesn't match what you see on screen. Wow. It's still great though. And I think we see echoes of that sort of technique in the new resident evil film. I've talked a lot. What is, <laughs> what's your experience with the director? And I guess furthermore, I guess this is a brand new interpretation of Resident Evil. So what's your thoughts going into this? Well, I, I think, um, yeah, like because of your involvement, I had had some sort of partial interest as well, because I think I did go to uh, an early screening of Sanitarium or, or, or something like that. I think like I went to see it in Southampton with you when there was like a premiere or, or something. Um, but I think the last actual film of his I saw was F, which is the hoodie horror in the school style thing. But it's been mm. interesting to see. I guess that was the last kind of like purely British horror film he did. And since then he has been, yeah, I guess making a name of himself with stuff like The Other Side of the Door, the 47 Meters Down films. And yeah, most recently, Strangers Pray at Night. Again, I have not seen those, but every time I see anyone mention Strangers Pray at Night, they're like, pull scene. Mm-hmm. thumbs up you know the whole time so i think when i heard that he got the gig for this new reboot because there had been rumblings of a sort of reboot since 2017 and you know it's not it's not been very long since the final chapter i can't remember when that came out was that 2016 this, this film was announced when the final chapter was in cinemas uh, i think yeah. at the time it had um a different creative team like james wan and like. Yeah, and Greg Russo, I think, was attached to write the script. Uh, who you know, since done the Mortal Kombat script. So yeah, but if you think about it, like you know, there's enough Spider-Man reboots and reiterations and all that kind of stuff. It's like, why not Resident Evil? And it, you know, next year will be 20 years since the first Resident Evil movie, and this is the 25th anniversary of Resident Evil: The Games series, as we've kind of mentioned just earlier in this year. We did do an episode on the final chapter and we did do an episode on infinite darkness. So it's about time we did another Resident Evil movie. And just so luckily happens that there's one in cinemas, welcome to Raccoon City. So I think when I heard that he was the director and and the writer and director, I was like, Oh, I was like, like it's cited for you Mm. (laughs) as well. And like it's cited for me in that sense, you know, because like regardless of how it would turn out, it's nice to have that kind of like one or two degree separation uh, of that sort of thing. And 
I guess the the main purpose of this franchise reboot and the main goal in the structures, as has been established with the Sits Alice movies, as I've seen their kind of SonyPictures.com have now called it. I mentioned when that first came out, the fact that it sort of deviated so much from the original source material I was disappointed with, but then I came to terms with that and actually realized that was probably for the best because when they did start to introduce characters and elements from the games, it always seemed pretty hokey. And actually the strongest part of those movies by and large is the kind of OTT action and particularly Mili Jovovich and her kind of central performance in a way. But this Welcome to Raccoon City has been very much billed. This is a faithful adaptation going back to the original two games, going back to the original characters and story and very much a more horror-focused interpretation of that. And all the promotional material and all the stuff, you know, interviews with the director, etc., have very much been putting that at the forefront to kind of be like, don't worry, guys, we hear you. We know the previous six films made like over a billion dollars worldwide. Uh, clearly doing something right. But this is the chance, this is the opportunity for you to see, you know, the characters that you know and love go back to the start, go back to setting it in 1998 and just create a version of Resident Evil that, you know, you grew up with in a way or you sort of know and love in a kind of, I guess, celebratory nod with also the eye of maybe relaunching the franchise in, in that respect. And, you know, it's there's sort of like competing projects and complementary projects. I mean, just uh, a few days ago, uh, there was the Resident Evil Netflix series. There was like a, a brief teaser uploaded to Instagram and swiftly taken down, but, you know, there's images still there. Um, of I like, like that. Just... What do you think the Umbrella Corporation took it down? <laughs> they were like, oh, here's a video of this zombie dog. Uh, actually, is that good for our branding? <laughs> um, maybe we should take that down. Um... A puppy, not a zombie dog. <laughs> the, the before picture, not the after picture. <laughs> um yeah, like that that's been very much like the intention and the justification of the existence of, you know, yet another Resident Evil movie. So that's like really where this film has like positioned itself more than anything. Welcome to Raccoon City is a very faithful adaptation of the Resident Evil games. This is where it all started. Why are you back here, Claire? This is an origin story where we meet all the iconic characters from the games. We should split up. Every frame has details to the game, from the burger that the truck has eaten to the actual truck design. We built the Mansion Police Station to the spec of the game. Shall we go? This is a horror movie created with love of the game. Oh my god. It's, it also occupies quite an interesting place because at first blush, I'm like, why why are we going back to like the 90s? What you know, what's what's the point of going back to that old game? I mean, I love them, they're this historic video game landmarks, but why are we going all the way back there? And then I remembered, hey, wait a minute, like there's been the Resident Evil 2 remake in the last couple of years. So this is kind of really interesting because I'm watching this thinking about all the 98 stuff. 
but um, there's a lot of influence from the remake as well, and you've played that to completion, haven't you? So yeah, it kind of manages to be both nostalgic but also fairly current. Um, and the fact that it's a period piece is, is kind of like by the by. I'm assuming the remake is also set in 98, the video game remake is set in 98. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think definitely like while they are saying, oh yeah, it's it's like indebted to the original, going back to the original games, but actually like looking at where it's drawing most of its nods from, it's like the Resident Evil GameCube remake from I think 2002, and um, very much, yes, the, the recent Resident Evil 2 uh, remake uh, from a few years ago. Can you so, me? Sorry to interrupt. When mm-hmm. when did the original PlayStation game come out? Was that 98? 96. Right. And then, like, it just... Sorry, my brain did a little fart when I realised, wow, that remake in the GameCube from 2002 looks so much better than the 96 version. Like, technology is just incredible, dude. <laughs> Yeah, like the, I, I always, it always baffles me, like the jump between, you know, say Star Fox 64 and the original Star Fox is only like four years or something. <laughs> you know, what a time to be alive, I say, clutching my moon pie. <laughs> Whereas, like, you can still like very comfortably play. I'm like, like I said, you know, I was playing the Max Payne game um, from you know 20 years ago or whatever, and. I'm having like no issues apart from my janky controller, <laughs> but like, you know, in terms of like the gameplay and stuff, there's not like the language of gaming has not really evolved graphically. It's like refined, but like, it's really just the same kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, that's like fascinating in of itself, but yeah, like in, in terms of like the references and things, um, obviously those remakes follow the stories of the original game, but some of the characters and some of the nods and little Easter eggs, etc., are very much remake only. Mm. I read in the trivia section that the fact that the trucker in this film eats a hamburger is a reference, an Easter egg to the remake. And I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> Burger. Mm. Mm. Okay. <laughs> And I think, like, you know, anything when you do, when you, you claim to be more faithful and all this kind of stuff, it's like the Easter egg. It's like, I'm putting this in here. Is this organic or is this, like, forced? And I think, you know, there is a sort of debate to be had of that. And it's been very interesting, before we go into our own reactions, how this film, which should in so many respects be, like exactly what the fans want how the fans have been have reacted to it it's just like come to the risen evil diner and we'll like serve you this menu tated specifically to your tastes and your tastes alone and then like they open up the what is it the cloche the cloche or whatever you know like reveal the dish and they're like i'm not eating that (laughs) hey i ordered Um, the ghostbusters afterlife platter (laughs) send that back (laughs) i want that kind of nostalgia it's it's been interesting seeing that because obviously there's still like a fresh release, but it, it came out, you know, a, a couple of weeks before it did here in the UK. We're talking about it the sort of first weekend of the release. In, in generally speaking, um, it hasn't set the box office alight. Um, it seems like it was made on a very kind of small budget, you know, despite the fact that the films previous to this made 
you know, a billion dollars or whatever. The budget for this film is only about 25 million, I think. And so far it's pulled in 15 million, which is not great considering the, you know, the success and popularity of the games. It is, of course, a pandemic still going on. And this was also shot during a pandemic. Yeah, I saw the credits. And so you're starting to see in the credits of films, like the COVID credits. And I was yeah. I noted of interest, one role is Dirty Nurse. Um, so there's somebody here, their job on the film was Dirty Nurse as part of the COVID crew. And I really want to know what that is. Are you sure it wasn't a character in the film? It wasn't, you know, unless... They've either started to put characters in the middle of the other credits <laughs> or not. So, yes. See if you can find the cast amongst the key just, groups. It's just one thing I can't Google because I think I might get other results for Dirty Nurse. So, <laughs> I just don't know what that is. Put the but safe yeah, search I've, got, on. I've got thoughts, of course, about. So, I feel that this film might break even, but it's got an uphill struggle because it's released in a pandemic it is absolutely about like a a viral outbreak and none of the odian cinemas in the uk are showing this film mm. so my plan this weekend i was going to finish work on friday go down to my local odian cinema watch resi and be ready to record on saturday it'd be going to be great and then like a tweet appeared where somebody had been contacting like Odeon Cinema's helpline saying, I can't find Resident Evil. And the response was, we have not been able to reach an agreement to show Resident Evil in our cinemas. However, we look forward to welcoming Odeon guests through our doors for the exciting range of films we have on show for the coming weeks. And that was written by Shakira. I'm assuming not the singer-songwriter. <laughs> <laughs> so hey on a personal level that was extremely annoying because i ended up all my local cinemas are odian like all of them and so your had, your local town is in the hands of odian corp they are indeed and so they got their had, fingers in every cine, cinema <laughs> so i had to travel last night to cinema and it was showing just a couple of showings and then i had to go home on a rainy dark nights just like in the film hitchhiking with a tracker you know what i would have done but this film said it's probably not a good idea <laughs> but um so on a personal level that's really annoying <laughs> i have to say though i went to the uh, empire cinema in sutton and it's a lot nicer than my local odeon <laughs> um, i felt like a flipping movie star it's great um but if you're not odeon is a massive chain and I have no insider knowledge of this. I can only assume, and this is where we talk about budget and expectation and all that stuff. I can only assume that maybe on the Sony side, they were saying, this is the Resident Evil franchise. We make millions of dollars. You've got you to show these films on more screens or for longer. And Odeon's like, um, this is like a reboot with a low budget and the trailers aren't great. <laughs> so... Um, I just don't, you know, we'd rather show, devote more screens to Spider-Man, which you also own Sony. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's been next to no marketing. Again, bless bless the old um, Odeon Cinema. I was like, they've still got posters up <laughs> showing them, you know. It's like, we'll, we'll advertise movies we're not showing. <laughs> now showing this poster 
in the cinema. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's not going to do very well, but I do hope it breaks even because that, that's the smart thing to do with like horror is you just make it for as cheap as you can and then that will hopefully get you a sequel. Yeah. Well, before we sort of talk about our own thoughts about the movie, shall I just do a little quick synopsis? Yes, please. So this comes from sonypictures.com, and it reads, Returning to the origins of the massively popular Resident Evil franchise, fan and filmmaker Johannes Roberts brings the games to life for a whole new generation of fans. In Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, once the booming home of pharmaceutical giant Umbrella Corporation, Raccoon City is now a dying Midwestern town. The company's exodus left the city a wasteland, with great evil brewing below the surface. When that evil is unleashed, a group of survivors must work together to uncover the truth behind Umbrella and make it through the night. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I got distracted by how it's announced itself as the origin of evil. And I think the posters, the tagline say the beginning of evil, but... It's nothing of the sort. We don't really know any what happens. I think um, the origin of evil that was like episode eight of Twin Peaks: The Return, right? Um, I've not got that far. Twin Peaks is a show. I've got the season one and two box set of Twin Peaks, and I always fantastically enjoy season one. And then I get through like five episodes of season two, sheer force of will, and then something occupies my life. And I have to do something else, but I but do. You've want... never seen Twin Peaks: The Return. I watched like it's... the first two, three episodes of that, and okay. again, I was really enjoying it. Uh, you know, I've got a real—I don't know. I think with David Lynch, I think I like—I say I like him because I want to look cool. <laughs> a little goes a long way, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed his little Netflix film where he had an argument with a chimpanzee. <laughs> that was good. That was pure lynch. Every story has a beginning. Discover the origin of evil. Why are you back here, Claire? Your conspiracies weren't true when we were kids. They're not true now. We need to expose Umbrella. Watch this. I'm afraid, Claire. I'm afraid of what they're going to do to this town. You see, Umbrella, they had an incident. I'm talking Chernobyl, if you know what I mean. People are getting sick. You gotta help us, Claire. Let the world know what's really going on.
I mean, talking about influences, and because I, I you know, follow Johanna so much, um, I know he's like a massive John Carpenter fan. Oh, really? He's a huge John Carpenter fan. And you no, can... I'm just sort of being uh, facetious based on this movie. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like so many of his films are like based on like siege movies, like The Fog. And I think this uses the font in all the titles, all the credits and things. It's the font from Prince of Darkness. But I also noticed several references to Gatlin which is actually a reference to the town in Children of Corn by Stephen King. Um, and um, See, just I, I, I got the Gatlin name check, and I thought that was a thing from his movies, because he uses Gatlin a lot. And I think in Hellbreeder, don't you portray in one scene a Gatlin mental patient? I, yes. So, I, I, well, yeah. Um, his film company started as Cat and Cage. That's when I knew him. And then he did loads of films under Gatlin Pictures, including The Forest of the Damned and things. And um, I, look, I looked myself up on IMDb actually today. And since I last looked myself up, I've become Harry Steele the first. Ooh. <laughs> there's like five other. Um, there's up to, we've got like up to five Harry Steeles. Wow, you're the first one on IMDb. I am the first one. Because I guess you were the first one with a credit. Yeah. When and that started. The most recent one is someone in a film called Ninja and they're, they're additional crew. Let's have a look at Ninja. Good for them. Ninja is a short form sci-fi thriller following four strangers who partake in a popular televised game show for the ultimate prize. Somebody's seen Squid Game or all those other things. <laughs> Again, Squid Game reference. I don't think it's televised, is it? It's televised for rich people. I know that much. Anyway, where were we? Resident Evil and Gatlin. So yeah, um, influences. One thing I appreciate about Johannes and his devotion to John Carpenter is that he likes the long take and the steady camera. So there's not going to be much in the way of like whip pans and the shit you'll see in like the Paul W. Sanderson movies. And cinema in general, I'll say. <laughs> and yeah, I, I think like very much with this film, I mean, when talking about going back to horror, it's like the texture of this film, it feels like a sort of 80s or 90s horror. Like there, I don't know if there was like a grain imposed or something, but there's a lot of like slow zoom ins to shadows and barely visible faces in the darkness. And there's a lot of the lighting is like fluorescent light, not so much like neon. It's not going completely synth wave, but it, it definitely is like, you know, if you go John Carpenter route, you're going to get a little uh, rub off a little of that on the way. And like, you know, sort of like little techniques, like there's a phone conversation that um, Birkin's having at one point with like a split diopter effect, I think it's called. So all these like elements creates like this definitely feels like the texture of an older classic in a way horror movie, which again sort of like speaks a bit more to the era. Even though by this time horror movies in the nineties were all like post stream ironic slasher movies. Yeah, there's definitely the word throwback came up a lot, and that has sort of negative connotation to it. Um, and I guess depending on your point of view, 
it can feel like too much of a throwback because um yeah i definitely got a vibe that this this could have come out in 98 this this is really like the alternative universe of resident evil where they decided no no we're gonna make an adaptation of the games and whereas yeah, Paul W. Sanderson decided to make kind of like a Paul W. Sanderson movie. I mean, it's been such a long time since I've seen that first Resident Evil film. I have to keep reminding myself that when we watched it, we were still quite impressed. I mean, should we start talking about our thoughts for the film? We won't do spoilers mm-hmm. yet, but here's, here's the thing. So I came out, so like after having all this, sh- having pretty exhausting week and a pretty exhausting um, time getting to the cinema. I sat down and thought, this better be the best Resident Evil film ever. <laughs> and like afterwards, I was like, you were lucky. <laughs> no, so here's the thing. Is this a good film? I'm struggling to answer that question. I'm erring on the side of, no, it's not a good film. But I, I've, I'm less than 24 hours having seen it. I would need to see it again. It's kind of that repeat viewing feel. Like, do I want to come back and watch this again? Because I think I've seen a few films this year where I've been raving about it. And then I realized, oh, everyone was right when they were telling me they're kind of hollow pieces of shit because I've not felt any need to see that film again. Um, With this, I'll need to see if I want to see this again. I feel like you'd much rather flip on like a Paul W.S. Anderson Resident Evil movie for like the fun factor of it all. But, 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 I won't lie when I said, I mean, I did really enjoy myself and especially because it felt very resonant evil it's the tone and i think johannes has said in interviews it's the the tone of the thing is the important thing in this film he this i was afraid a whole bunch of times i don't think i only got any jump scares i don't think i was trying to do that but mm. there are zombie attacks which are brutal and scary and and he like with the shark film I mentioned and some of his other work, he knows with a stranger's prayer at night, he knows how to do a, a horror scene. Yes. Whether or not he's getting any good with characters or performances, that's a, that's a more difficult thing to answer, but just as a sort of uh, gimme on that front, I have to admit, None of the characters act like human beings, but that felt very Resident Evil to me. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how intentional that was. But what were your thoughts? I really liked it, mm-hmm. and obviously, I am a a Resident Evil fan club member, not literally, but that sort of thing. And I have seen like a lot of divisive responses from fans taking a lot of issues they either say that it's they said it was going to be faithful and it's not and then all the easter raids and stuff was too fan servicey so it's like make up your minds dudes <laughs> like a lot of people complaining oh they did this character dirty oh they did this and i think like the main issue that people have is that this is not an adaptation of resident evil 1 or 2 it's both and by so doing it kind of like smushes these two games together and people say that then that doesn't give any of the kind of story in inverted commas of both games to sort of breathe doesn't allow time to sort of bed in with the characters all that kind of stuff and you know one can argue 
by so doing, yes, maybe I kind of got to the end of the film and was just like, oh, I guess they didn't include this. Oh, I guess they didn't include that. But at the same time watching it, I didn't miss those things. It is a little bit like a kind of speed run version. <laughs> um, but what I will say is that, yes, this may not be like a smart movie. You know, as in you say, is it a good movie or a bad movie? I don't know. I, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not saying this is like a smart movie, but I think the choices that were made were very smart. And I think actually the way it weaves the two games together, because both of these games are set within, I mean, the first two games are set within like a couple of months of each other um, in the same sort of area. The third game is set like in between and like either side of the second game. That doesn't go in that way. So in a way you could say that this film even smushes together three movies, um, uh, three video games. But I think if the intention was, or whatever, whether it came from, uh, Johannes is right, a director, or whether it came from Capcom, but clearly the idea was we are going to do game one and game two in one movie, make it work. I think every choice that was made in order to make that work were good choices and very sensible. And a lot of stuff is like, what do we do with this character? Uh, we'll need to amalgamate them a little bit with some other characters in order to make them progress through the overall story. Or you know, the characters of Claire and Chris, um, we're going to make them orphans. They're raised in the Raccoon City Orphanage, which I don't think is in the original Resident Evil 2, but is in the remake of Resident Evil 2 and plays a role there. So how do we incorporate in there? Oh, it makes organic sense to have them, you know, make that their backstory. Like all these little choices, I think in terms of streamlining the story, tweaking things to make the film work as a kind of, you know, a, a whole, there are obviously some loose ends, but, you know, a, as a kind of like complete story, I think are all really good choices. And I, I think you're right. Like this is the first Resident Evil film since maybe Resident Evil Apocalypse to feel like Resident Evil. But, you know, because the, those Paul W. Sanderson movies, they became like, in a way, more like the games, because the games got stupider and <laughs> sillier. And, you know, Resident Evil's always been a bit silly, of course. Um, but, like, when you're talking about Resident Evil 5, Resident Evil 6 era, and then, like, the movies, you know, they sort of fed into each other in that respect. And this is, like, the first to feel like, oh, it's actually going back to the games and really sort of thinking about them in any respect, rather than just, like, oh, the games are just a vehicle for Paul W.S. Anderson to, like, do whatever he likes since Resident Evil Apocalypse. But, obviously, I, I would say this is the much better film and yeah, like I said, I've made my peace with those Paul W.S. Anderson movies. And when this film was kind of announced and revealed, it was like, I didn't think I needed a straight up adaptation like this anymore. But this film really scratched an itch I didn't know I still had. <laughs> and so I really just had a good time watching it. I don't think I have really any major complaints any issues I have are in relation to the project in of itself, but what I've seen and, you know, the final result, I'm like, yeah, that's Resident Evil to welcome to Raccoon City. All right. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I just been thinking a lot about this podcast and Ghostbusters Afterlife. <laughs> and I guess this, I'm going to, I'm not going to talk too much about Ghostbusters Afterlife because we might be doing a Ghostbusters episode in the future. But 
I've just started to, and what we kind of do in this podcast is we, we, none of these films we talk about have any reason to exist, right? By which I mean, they are like, almost without exception, there to make more money for an IP. You know, there's no, there's no kind of real artistic intention to just, just, no, no one just comes up with an idea to make these movies. They're always like, oh, this is popular. Let's make Let's make some more of them. Um, so the only way to really approach these is to judge them on their own merits. Like, so the reason why I'm talking about Ghostbusters is that I did see the Ghostbusters Afterlife movie, and there feels like so much baggage, not only with the legacy of the original films, but also, of course, the reaction to the 2016 movie. You kind of have to get rid of all that noise and just judge a film on what it sets out to do. Did this film do what it set out to do? And with Resident Evil, I think it, by and large, Welcome to Raccoon City, does what it sets out to achieve. And so I can only applaud it for that. I will agree with the critics, though, who say that maybe having these two plots running concurrently was a negative. Was it actually... Although I think my favourite group of characters was Leon, uh, Claire, and uh, Chief Irons, I found their plot less interesting than what was going on with the Spencer Mansion with the rest of the team. So, the balance is out then. <laughs> no, but I would agree that you know I wanted to spend more time exploring this mansion, but but these characters are boring <laughs> and. Um, so yeah, I think I would I I understand the the business decision to make it's this film sort of a greatest hits, but at the same time I kind of wish that Welcome to Welcome to Raton City was just a full blown adaptation of the first game. And then, you know, you could have this confidence about it and be like, okay, and the next film is gonna be Resident Evil Two and you know, it's gonna be Ace. That does seem to be the thing that fans at least have like the biggest misgivings about. And I don't know whether someone who isn't clued up to Resident Evil would be able to sort of keep up um, with this sort of like two sets of people, like and two sets of things happening all at the same time. And yeah, all these characters introduce themselves and say their names very helpfully. Um, But like, why should you care if like you've only just met them in, in, in that sort of respect? Because there's like, so much to kind of get through in a way as a fan i was i was confused because like you're dealing with slightly different characters doing slightly different things and i was i wasn't quite sure what was going on <laughs> oh because you were like you know it's like the difference between whether you select playing as chris or jill in the mm. first game or whether it's like are we doing leon a and claire b scenario or is it claire a and leon b scenario but yeah like I think we'll get, need to get into spoilers to get a bit to get too much more into nitty gritty. But but on the whole, I think we both agree that if you've grown up with Resident Evil for this time um, and you've been hankering for a truer representation of not only the the iconography but the tone of the games, then you know you can ask for more. And I've just reminded myself though of my original point. I say you couldn't ask for more, but I think. I think the ideal would be to have a horror film with this tone and also good characters and acting. 
Because mm. I'm giving it a big gimme here by saying, oh, it just reminds me of the corny dialogue from the games. And, you know, it just would be a little bit better if it, would be, if it was... I I don't know. I, I... You like the acting. And... I liked all the cast. I liked all the characters. Yeah. I liked the performances. I didn't have any issues. And again, they make some choices and they make some changes to the characters and sort of like merge some together or you know slightly change their characteristics but i think again like every choice was a smart one to make to serve the film that was being made uh, yeah maybe your issue is like i didn't like any of the characters or the performances but not because they weren't matching what i imagined the games to be but i didn't have any issues with them i i thought they're all a likable bunch of lads <laughs> um, going on a, a, a zombie-based adventure. So, yeah, I didn't have an issue there. Well, shall we talk about the characters and go into spoiler territory then? Uh, yes. We're lifting, going to the quarantine zone now. And uh, will we come out alive? I hope so. <laughs> well, <laughs> you'll have to see whether there's another episode of the podcast. Yeah. Um. I guess we should talk about the the Redfields because that's who we start with. Yes. So I had no idea that the remake kind of made them orphans, and um, we have. I don't think the games does. That's a choice for the film. I see. Okay. So there's no like level where you're playing kind of orphans. <laughs> no, but in Resident Evil Two Remake, you do play at one point as Sherry oh, Birkin okay. uh, in the orphanage. I did appreciate all like the raccoon motifs, like cartoon raccoons on the orphanage doors, and um, later we see a football helmet with a raccoon on it, and that's kind of neat. Makes it feel like a real place. Although Raccoon City seems incredibly small, like we have all these shots of the city, and it looks like a town. It looks like as much of a city as Disneyland's a city. Well, you know, Wells is the smallest city of England. Yeah, Somerset. And that's down to a cathedral, yeah. isn't it? So maybe there is a technicality. Maybe it got city status. <laughs> you because... said cathedral, I said technicality. Let's <laughs> <laughs> worship at the technicality. of um... one. Again, like this is, I think, not necessarily a strength of the film, but a again, a smart choice is positioning, and you have this kind of like opening text again with a sort of John Carpenter font where it sort of says that Raccoon City is a dying town and it's sort of in that respect because of Umbrella being withdrawn and it says those who remain too poor to leave are the only people there but it also in a way handily explains why there's like a skeletal police force Mm. why the streets are very empty and that explains maybe a little bit budgetary restrictions it explains maybe covid shooting restrictions in terms of you can only have a gathering of 20 zombies in one in one place even if shooting outdoors i don't know every time it kind of bugged me that there really weren't any people in this movie <laughs> um i was like oh no they, they, they did explain that and you know very good job it, it still is distracting but i get it it explains it but also why is there only like one or two police officers oh, i just want to let you know um it's now sixteen thirty-seven as we record this podcast <laughs> because this film has title cards telling you that it's like 155 or 202 and um 
but I think that also explains why there's like nobody around because it's very late. Yes, and also like it only just like towards the end where they're like, oh, and by the way, Raccoon City will be leveled at six a.m. It's just like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Um, maybe that explains why I should be more tense about this ticking clock that I've forgotten was happening. <laughs> What are you doing out hitchhiking on a night like this, anyway? Used to live here, you said. Raccoon City. Better you than me. Watch out! town's been poisoned. If we don't contain this, it could threaten the whole world. Shall we go? Come on. What the f- What were Umbrella doing here? They were experimenting on him. This is my life's work. I'm not giving it to anybody. We're also introduced, I would say, to the villain of the piece, uh, William Birkin. Played by friend of the show, Neil McDonough, mm-hmm. who um, his video game movie credits include Sonic the Hedgehog, Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li, and Company of Heroes. Mm. Who did you play in Sonic? He plays some army guy who gets shouted Robotnik at. Gets shouted at by oh, Robotnik yeah. and then disappears quite quickly. <laughs> okay, no. yeah, just trying to think. I was secretly hoping he played, I don't know, an owl or something. But no, he played Big the Cat. He played Big the Cat. Um, I say he's ostensibly the villain because with all these films, there's always like someone pulling the strings down the line, isn't there? But he seems to be using the kids of this orphanage to conduct experiments. And I think one of the results of his experimentations is this sort of deformed lady called Lisa Trevor. Yes. An iconic, scary, dairy villain from the games. So this is the thing where she is only in the Resident Evil remake for the GameCube. Mm. So she wasn't in the original game. So that's, again, a kind of... Not a telltale sign, but this is the first time this character's like appeared in any of the of the films before. So, you know, again, that sort of shows just where this is drawing its influence more from the more recent remakes. Properly horrifying as well. She's peering out of a sort of shroud made out of maybe human skin or I think it's just she's wearing a face mask the wrong way around. Is she? Okay. But this definitely, this whole sequence where little uh, Claire Redfield is being terrified by night terrors and then her brother's like, no, it's probably nothing, go back to sleep. (laughs) Um, But it it certainly makes you realise this ain't your, I want to say daddy's Resident Evil. This is not your older brother's Resident Evil. It's it's not Paul Devious Anderson's Resident Evil is what I'm trying to say. Because this is like fucking creepy. It's funny because like, 
like as soon as the music starts with the little girl going na, da, na, na, I was like this is sanitarium all over again <laughs> like, and so just the way like the orphanage bunk beds looked it's you know sort of the same but yeah it is like a very effective opening just when Claire's like looking into the sort of I don't know what you call it but you know like a little sort of sheet house thing um and lisa's sort of rocking back and forth and just like switches off a light and then like darkness and then you know in creepy writing scrolls like claire's like where are you from and then the word just says below it's chilling Mm. i mean like it's you know some maybe it's a little obvious in in that respect and like horror tropey but it sort of sets the scene, it sets the mood, and... Um, I don't think yeah. anyone is going to run up the wall and do a 180 high-flying kick into the face of a Doberman in this film. No, not quite. <laughs> but then we return to 1998. I can't remember, does it say the actual date? Yeah, 30th of September. Okay. Claire's coming into town to meet her brother. I can't remember the reason for her. Oh, she's been receiving some uh, VHS tapes and she's been talking on a quote-unquote chat room with this guy. <laughs> and that's, they, the funny thing is that this is set in 98, but I don't think it did too much with Hey, This Is 98 thing, apart from like music. You know, they used some hits. I think it's organic because mm. yes, you have like Leon, he's listening to a discman, but if it was, if it was today, he'd be listening to a mobile phone. And yeah, you have like the helicopter pilot, Brad playing snake on a Nokia phone. But if it was in today and he needed to be distracted doing something, he'd maybe be scrolling through Instagram. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, it's looking at snakes on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, he, he plays still, snakes because he likes snakes, not for any challenge. Yeah, still loves them snakes. Oh, it's like um, such a long snake. Oh no, it went away. <laughs> oh, it started again. I think for the most part, it's like, yeah, it's a kind of like look the nineties, but also it's it's it sets again, a mood, it, sets a tone, and I think yeah, it, it gives us it d- sets a ringtone. <laughs> um, I think it it helps give us a sense of place and. I mean, something about the whole movie. I mean, I did sort of say a rag on this a little bit earlier for how this didn't feel like a city, but I do feel the this film feels quite small, but I in scale. But I think that it adds to the sort of claustrophobia of it all. It really feels like this place is cut off, and certainly in sequences when you say, "Oh, there's only like a handful of zombies pursuing through the corridors," that's sort of enough, I think, and. Yeah, I think, again, like it sort of justifies like why this town would be left to allow to die. The fact that people are slowly getting infected because of something mm. in the water. And, and that's yes, something I mean, it, as well. It kind of explains that there is like, you know, this has been gradually happening over time, but then there's been like some massive leak and it's obviously gotten very worse, very quickly mm. but, i liked yeah. how this wasn't being spread by zombie bites and that's it's the old chestnut which we've talked to before because we do a lot of zombie movies on this podcast but the whole issue with zombies is like zombies have to kind of leave enough of you to walk around and affect somebody else but i love how this is sort of like a sort of a sickness it's like a chernobyl f- sort of fallout as it were and that felt 
Like I've recently rewatched Annihilation. Have you seen that yet? Mm-hmm. And that's got a quarantine zone. They go in and, and right away they, they feel like they're starting to change because of the very atmosphere. And I just got a similar sickly vibe on this film. I mean, I watched, I had my mask on throughout is all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you mentioned Leon and, and things. So I feel like Leon might have been one of my favorite characters, but I feel like he might also be kind of divisive because mm. even though Leon is absolutely a rookie in the game. In again, I only can speak to the '98 version or whatever. I've not played the remaster remake. He's still like as cool as a cucumber. Like every interpretation I've seen of Leon, he's kind of a badass, and he sort of takes over everything in his stride. In Resident Evil 2, it feels to some degree. But in this film, he is absolutely like the comic relief. He's absolutely like the, the the rookie who knows nothing. And I really enjoyed that for a change. I was just like, well, yeah, he just seems completely clueless. And yeah, yeah. I feel like people think that they've done... Look what they've done to my boy. They massacred <laughs> my boy. Um, Leon. About Leon. But like for me, I I really, really dug him. I think it is like fresh to have someone who's pretty like useless. He's like, they really do go the whole kind of rookie route. Like when we first meet him, he's introduced sort of waking up with like a bed sheet over his head. And then he's like nursing a hangover in a cafe and Wesker is balancing a ketchup bottle on mm. his head um all the cops like seemingly sort of hate him like there's this briefing scene where chief irons is talking to the stars team and leon's sort of like standing at the back and chief irons is just sort of like explaining like as you know about the spencer mansion and stuff like that and sort of just like doesn't miss a beat drops and just like turns right around to leon and is like shut the fuck up leon <laughs> I, I do like um, loud shut the fuck up i think i, I enjoy that and yeah, like later on, he's, you know, they're sort of tooling up and he's like, you're probably wondering why I'm a cop, uh, why I became a cop. And he's like, yeah, me too. He seems like someone who's just like landed himself in like a really shitty job in a shitty town because of probably just being a general fuck up in life. But by the, you know, the end of the film, he's like earned his stripes. And there is like sort of character growth and, you know, to skip right to the end, he inevitably finds a rocket launcher dispatch as you, as you do in a Resident Evil game slash film mm-hmm. dispatches like the, you know, main beast. And Chris is like rocket launcher. Really? And he's like, found it in first class. He yeah. just tosses it down. And that's like, that mean he has become the Resident Evil Four version of Leon by that point. Yeah, I mean, there's there's not much good humor in this, but I did enjoy that line. <laughs> For fans, Leon's an action hero, but we really wanted to go back to the original second game, where he's quite a nerdy, reluctant hero. Uh, guys. It was really important to cast the actor that could bring Leon Kennedy to life. We did not want someone that looked identical to the games but had no emotional connection. Woo! The fans are going to be happy with this movie because it's pulling very much from the games. Shall we go? Throughout the movie, we see Leon become the character that gamers will recognize. A rocket launcher? Found it in first class. 
talking about interpretations that you weren't so appreciative of or people aren't so appreciative of, I, I don't know how I feel about Wesker. And I think I've said before, I'm a major Wesker stan. I, I love the mercurial Wesker of the video games. Um, partly I didn't understand <laughs> what was going on with him because like in the games, he does betray his team but he seems to also be completely not understanding what he's doing. He he discovers um, a palm pilot in his locker and he's given a series of instructions throughout the film to locate something. I think he's there to collect the G-virus, which is in the basement of the Spencer mansion. Am I right here? Yes, someone's uploaded the Resident Evil Prima strategy guide to his... <laughs> To his palm pilot device and it shows him like the blueprints it shows him you know to un- in order to unlock this door he has to play moonlight sonata which is from the games as well uh, on the piano in the room but like he has this kind of like puzzlement about what he's doing and it's quite exactly why on his face and through will, most of the film i'll say like so like i said i was kind of rubbing up against this i was also trying to work out where i'd seen this actor before <laughs> and then i realized oh he's um uh tom hopper from my beloved show bbc's merlin <laughs> and i'm like oh i remember you you're Sir Percival with the with the arms like he's the one <laughs> knight and that's the thing when you see a guy in military gear you think where have i seen him oh yeah in a cape in, in a castle in france that's where i've seen him um i think generally speaking like the cast are mainly culled from tv and usually from shows i have not seen so mm. he's like currently in the umbrella academy and then like the actor who plays leon avon jodia He's in shows called Victorious, Now Apocalypse, Ghost Wars. I don't know. So, yeah, I think most of these cast members seem to be like from like CW shows. And I think it was <laughs> I mean, filmed in Canada. So it's like TV is just every TV show. American TV show is actually made in Canada. This is what I, I was talking about the acting, though, because like there's when when Chris and Claire meet up, it goes into full CW mode with, with the drama. And yes, yeah, she's talking about a potential zombie apocalypse. And there's a the next door neighbor is writing itchy, tasty in blood of the window. But it still feels like very E4 on a Saturday morning <laughs> when I was a, a teenager sort of thing. Um, but I will say about Wesker. So like I said, I was kind of, he wasn't my Wesker, but the film inevitably has a mid-credit sequence where he's brought back to life after being shot. And he's like, oh, my eyes, my eyes. And he's worrying. He gets he gets given some sunglasses. I'm like, oh, right. The origin of sunglasses. <laughs> and then, like, earlier I was about to crack a joke when we are talking about Resident Evil multiverses. I'm like, this is like a rare film which doesn't feature a multiverse. But no, you can't go to the cinema without fucking mid-credits sequel tease, can you? Like, every, like, everyone's been conditioned to sit and wait for, like, a sequel tease now and i'm like oh, can't the story just end but anyway ada's there ada everyone in her trench coat like she didn't even have to say her name oh there's, there's somebody there she looks like an ada it's an ada and she says we've got plans for you or something along that lines and i like i don't i just i, I will what am i trying to say i mean you know won't give you i won't tell you what happens but of course as a mid credit sequence in Ghostbusters Afterlife and it's all like to tease a sequel they've not even decided to write about yet and I wish they had an idea for a story. Got on a bit of a tangent here. What I'm trying to say is 
I am here for like a Wesker origin tale where if we do get a sequel, Wesker has gone from this sort of naive, maybe idealist guy to like to to become something more, you know? So Oh, just like whacking Phoenix's Joker. <laughs> I think that moment was definitely like the film at its sort of corniest. Because it is just like, oh, you know, the the side effect, the light and all that kind of stuff. It's like, here, have these McDonald's Happy Meal sunglasses, <laughs> um, your iconic sunglasses. So that was like a bit much. But also like it was slightly ruined. So during the epic climax on the train, just as the giant G-virus Birkin monster like rips through the ceiling, the lights in the cinema came up. Oh, God. So, like, the whole of that rather dark sequence was a bit like, eh, can't quite see. And then the lights came down for the mid credit sequence (laughs) and then went back up again. Just like, hey, view Shepherd's Bush. you got to sort your programming out because, by golly. But it was funny because it played with the whole idea. It's like, I can't see anything. I can't see anything. It's like, here, put on these sunglasses. Oh, good. I just felt very self-conscious because I actually was the only person staying to the very end of the credits. Enjoying the music. I enjoyed the music in this film. Um, yeah, by Mark Corvin, who did the music for Cube and most recently oh, worked with Robert Eggers for the music for The Witch and The Lighthouse. Nice. Yeah, it was a very oppressive, oppressive, corrupted soundtrack. But nevertheless, I, I was watching the credits and watching me was like the cleaning staff just willing me to go because it was approaching <laughs> midnight <laughs> so sorry but yeah I, I think the western character again yeah i can see why he's divisive because he's not this like super villain architect you know embedded in an umbrella from the get-go sort of thing but all that stuff never really sat right with me in the games it all seemed like oh we've got this fan favorite character let's like retrospectively make him like this super duper villain as much as i enjoy the kind of like camp polarity of that but i think what they've done is they've slightly amalgamated him with the barry burton character who doesn't appear in this film but he also is being paid up by umbrella a slight slash they are threatening to kill his family um so he kind of turns on them but has a conscience and also the whole we need someone to retrieve the g-virus samples from birkin who's potentially withholding his research. And we don't know whether it's Umbrella paying Wesker to do this or some other organization, but then he's slightly then amalgamated into the Hunk character in Resident Evil 2, who's one of the Umbrella kind of task force. There was a shot uh, people. of an Umbrella soldier in a gas mask. And there were like two, there were two of them actually, because they are, they're gathered around the all the exits from Raccoon City. And <laughs> there's a close up of this gas mask soldier. I really wanted the other soldier to be like, Hey, hunk. <laughs> so so we were the fans, but it'd be confusing for everyone else. And then did you see just in the background there was this giant block of tofu with yep. a knife and a berry? Follow that tofu. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I again I can see why people maybe dislike what they've done, but I think it was a choice that was made and it's a smart way yes. to make him do things which other characters would have done. Maybe they should have just made it Barry rather than Wesker, but they clearly, no, as it, it you a say, choice between Barry and Rot Wesker. <laughs> I'm sorry, Wesker wins every time. But no, I'd forgotten that Barry wasn't in this, and I think you've argued the case. I think 
like, I didn't dislike him. I just, and, and I'm intrigued to where it goes. But yeah, I think, I think in a film which is already kind of overstuffed with characters and and plot and uh, what do they want, what characters want, it's um a good motivations. Bit, motivations, that's what they're called. It's a good bit of streamlining. You, you can't really have two people in the umbrella payroll sort of betraying stars. So, whatevs. Albert Wesker is known in the games to be one of the key villains of the story. We didn't want him to be a stereotypical villain. We wanted him to be likable. The faster we find, the faster we can get out of here. We're seeing who he really is underneath the sunglasses. It's an origin story of that brings that version of Wesker. We watch this character evolve and become the Wesker that we all know from the games. It really does feel like we're making the movie version of the game. I'm not really offering you a choice. But speaking of people kind of on the umbrella payroll, question mark, uh, it's um, Chief Irons, played by Donald Logue. Now, I think in the games he was legitimately on the payroll of Umbrella. Have I got that right? Have I got that wrong? Yeah. In this, he seems a little bit more in the dark. Although when when shit starts to go down, he's the first out of the building, isn't he? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a bit unclear. Like, I think this kind of doesn't go quite the same route in terms of the town is like corrupted and it's everyone, you know, people are in the pocket of Umbrella. I mean, it explains a certain extent why this like small town has like a super army soldier squad and they've got a police mm-hmm. chopper and they talk about budget cuts and things, but it makes sense that if the population were to turn or anything like that, you would have, you know, trained soldiery type police officers to combat that. There's also an idea that they've been kept healthy, I think, because they're, yeah. they're not getting sick. They're drinking the special water bottles with the umbrella yes. logo on. <laughs> but yeah it's this whole i guess like idea that's sort of chief irons he probably knows a bit what's going on or maybe sort of anticipates it but you know he's not allowed out of town either or doesn't care enough to stand in the way and he is aware of the fact there's like a route from beneath the orphanage going to the spencer mansion but he probably doesn't know any about anything about the experiments and all that kind of stuff so it's a bit unclear but um I enjoyed his sad sack, <laughs> shitty performance very much. Like it's a slightly different vibe, I think, to the the different interpretations of Irons in the game. Who's more of a kind of twisted pervert? Yeah, um, like who's best. like really into sort of taxidermy, and then he's like trying to do the same to like the mayor's daughter. This he's more. I wouldn't say lovable, but he relatable. I wouldn't say relatable either. But like he seems like a kind of real person, even if he's like a shitty one. I mean, I don't think I can't again, I wish I'd seen this more than once, but I think his introduction, he's just giving a briefing and he seems like a real cartoon character. Um mm. but you know, I'll, I'll let that slide, I suppose. I, I did again, I enjoyed it, even though like, you know, it was trash, but enjoyable trash. I'd much rather watch like a trashy, rough round the edges, like horror movie. Then like a kind of a glossy kind of PG-13 action movie version of Resident Evil, you know? It's really kind of like bloody and nasty when it wants yeah, to be. Yeah, it's squishy. Yeah, because even though there is like 
CG stuff inevitably. It seems like still when there's like zombies and monsters about, it's like fluid, it's liquidy. Like the gore is very like sloshy and splashy mm. and as see- opposed to just like flying through the air. And the zombies themselves, we get, I mean, interestingly, I don't think the word zombies ever used. And I think partly because of COVID restrictions or whatever, there's, it feels very much less of an, it doesn't feel really like a zombie apocalypse movie. Or no. I don't know what to, it feels more like an infection movie or like, because there's this really oppressive feel. But the zombie designs themselves, I thought there was something about them I really liked. They, I guess it's because they were less, rotting corpses and more emaciated and infected and their faces pushing through the bars of the police station gates um they felt a bit rubbery and i feel that might have been a choice and not just bad makeup i think there's just something about how they've kind of they've got too much liquid in them you know there's 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 an imbalance and yeah just just a real icky squishy feel about them and it sort of also explains why so many of them are bald in the games, because like the water, their hair's all falling out. Yeah. There is this sort of iconic zombie turnaround sequence when the stars team get to the Spencer mansion. It, it, the impact is lessened somewhat by the fact we've, we've already seen a bunch of zombies by the time we get there. Mm-hmm. It's not like this kind of sudden, what the hell's going on reveal, like it's, it's meant to be. But I, I did like how... That's then followed by all this like strobe lighting, mm. gunfire stuff, with, like darkness. zombies popping up, and the kind of sequence where Chris, who has the lighter naturally, um, is like flicking the light, and there's like one of his sort of uh, zombie cops colleagues sort of edging closer towards him and just going. <laughs> that was I did. <laughs> The only issue, like again, again it's not like it's... it's not like jump scares. I, I, no. I never, I was never like scared, but it was just like, oh, this is like a good horror I, bit. I, I felt the fear, but no, I think I, I appreciate that they're not going. He's not going for easy jump scares. It is like a feeling of dread, and I thought that was a highlight. The strobe lights, you know, the, the strobing being caused by gunfire, but all the, there's always banging and moaning and screaming. And then in the other wing of the Spencer Mansion, nobody's had a damn thing. <laughs> and like, and like Wesker and Jill are going through this mansion together. Jill, Wesker's got his ulterior motive. Jill's following, but regardless, they are both on edge. They are both listening for the slightest, slightest floorboard creak. And this mansion must have fantastically thick walls. <laughs> if they hadn't heard, I don't think you're going to get any Wi-Fi, which didn't exist in '98. So I'll scratch that little joke. Um, yeah, bit odd, bit odd there. We haven't really talked about. I think Jill is the last character we've not really focused on at all, uh, of note, because there's also I think Vickers, the pilot, and I think Richard is another character who's kind of just like a red shirt. Um, but Jill is played by Hannah John Kamen, or Kamen, and uh, we've seen her in Ready Player One, haven't we? Yep, and Tomb Raider. And Tomb Raider. And she's, I feel like she's definitely the latest sort of geek queen of this sort of thing. And so she's a, a spunky Jill Valentine, I thought. Um yeah, she's probably not given the most to do out of no. like the core four, but I think she kind of makes the most of it. Like, I like the fact that she is 
you know, she's feisty. She's a little bit edgy, a little bit dangerous. I like how, again, a little Easter eggy, but when she's sort of in the police station and she's sort of saying, would you rather die by being eaten by, swallowed by a giant snake or eaten by a giant shark? which are nods to the first Resident Evil game. And of course, I think she, she wins a bet with Wesker at the start and nicks his sandwich, which becomes a Jill sandwich. It's that to Monday. Which, you know, I think that scene appeared in the featurette online and everyone was kind of rolling their eyes and going like, oh God, they're just ladling on the references. But in the context of the scene, you know, I would say it's a Harry sandwich now. I think it's a... <laughs> You know, you, what was it in? Um, I think you should leave. You're gonna, you're gonna eat that. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it, but I think yeah, she didn't seem to have much to do. And again, you can't make every character a main character. And they decidedly said it's going to be kind of Claire and Wesker, maybe Chris and Leon are the main characters in this film. Um, as a player, I've always like preferred Jill Valentine. It's just such a fucking cool name, is it? Jill Valentine, but. She's kind of like a, a B-tier character in the film. Oh, my God. I love horror films. I always go, if this really happened, how would I survive? Where are they? It's a Jill. It's guns. Really? What? Someone should confiscate that. Jill is a little bit crazy. What would the worst way to die be? You're a freak, Valentine. She works in the police force in this small town. Hey! You snooze, Julius. It's Jill Sandwich now. She's very loyal. Go get the others. I'll find a way out. You don't mess with her. Come on. She's just so badass. I think it's a sensible approach to focus on Claire and Chris in a way and their bond as brother and sister. And that's a good in for covering both the first and second games because it's Chris Redfield, one of the main characters in the first game, Claire Redfield, one of the main characters in the second game, and the start of that game is her going into Raccoon City to find her brother Chris. She spends all that game trying to do so and turns out he's not there. But in this film they like meet up really quickly. <laughs> so <laughs> whole different game. Like, Why didn't she just go to his house first in the game? <laughs> I wish she was trying to and then zombies happened. Oh, right. It also threads them nicely together as being also raised to an extent by Umbrella. Because mm. Claire left town and ran away, but Chris stayed. He became, he was sort of taken in under Birkin's wing. And like, it was Umbrella who raised him. It was Umbrella who trained him to be a cop and all this kind of stuff. So he's like a paid up, fully fledged, like Umbrella's great. Look at what it done for us. And she's obviously coming out at this at the kind of like, no, there was like this creepy, weird uh, woman in the orphanage stalking around. And also I was taken because I knew too much. I was taken away to a, a scary room and ran away. So, yeah, that's why I don't like them so much. I <laughs> uh, bringing up the whole being kidnapped for experimentations again. Get over it. <laughs> Leon and Claire and Irons are having to escape the police station because it's been overrun by zombies after the truck exploded sort of outside and the trucker walked in on in flames while Jennifer Page's crush plays on Leon's <laughs> discman. For some reason. Um, 
which I liked. I, I thought it was like, this is a good bit of horror imagery. Kudos. But they make it to the orphanage and this is where they encounter the liquor. And I liked how the sort of, the you just see the fluorescent lights like swing one after the other, yeah. but you can't see what's above them. It's a good twist on like an iconic scene that we all know very well. Because I think even even the live action films and some of the animated films we watch, there's always that scene where you look up and there's a liquor there, but they hide the liquor behind these swinging fluorescent lights that's moving. See, I, I'm a kind of fuzzy on what, what's going on really with Umbrella because it never makes it really explicit. And I, I was confused for a while about, because because when Birkin discovers about the outbreak, he rushes to uh, the Spencer Mansion's lab to retrieve his research, I guess. But for a while, I was like, is he there to try and stop the infection? Um, I think he's working counter to what Umbrella wants, I think think because umbrella well because yeah i think in the games like umbrella are trying to get a hold of his research and he's mm. trying to stop them because he wants it for himself mm. and where how much he knows that's happening and how much not it's not clear where that phone call's coming from or even whether it's about the outbreak or whether it's about umbrella are trying to get your research before they level the town and he's but he's, he's like i need to save my research my life's work and i'm like was 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 he working on liquors as well I don't get the impression he was, but then he turns himself into a monster. It's just left, it's just left a little bit vague. And I don't need everything explained, but again, as much as I loved how the liquor looked and how it moved, and I thought the sequence when it licks up irons into the sky, I thought that was <laughs> into the sky, <laughs> into the into the darkness. It was all great. Yeah, and like his head just like plops down Perfect. as maybe yeah. like. It's one of the grossest moments in the film. Um, there's still like a little voice in the back of my head being like, um, so we've got zombies here and, and also a monster. <laughs> Where's that all coming from? Do, do we really need a great white shark transported to Nebraska mountains? Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so in the end, it is Lisa Trevor who appears and dispatches the liquor, mm. seemingly doing so in order to save... Claire, who is her friend. Yeah, I gave that I gave that a slide. I thought it was quite I thought it was just good, you know? It's it's a change because like the Lisa Trevor character in the game is very much a tragic figure, someone who's uh there's like a, a scientist and his daughter has been like experimented on and all this kind of things, and she sort of stalks the mansion and its surroundings and you find out more about her backstory, but she still is like trying to kill you the whole time. Whereas here she has made a friend in Claire Redfield and hands her the iconic keys, which accesses a secret elevator, which takes them down to the umbrella lab where they find an old reel of film, which plays a cutscene from Resident <laughs> Evil Code Veronica. <laughs> I was just very pleased to see um, two blonde twins pulling wings off a dragonfly. You know, that's that is a, you're completely correct. It's from Resident Evil Code Veronica, and I was kind of here for it. You know, not gonna. I'm not sure like what it means, like in the sort of grand scheme of things, but it's a bit like they're looking at this footage and like Claire's like tearfully like they were experimenting on them, and it's just like mm, kind of looks like they're just 
dicking around with a dragonfly. Uh, I mean, I was kind of thinking how, like, oh, it's like a film reel. But I think in the, you're more likely to encounter a film reel like that in 98 than you would be in 2021. I kind of, I think whenever I watch like a modern Simpsons episode, they're still using the film film reels for that for, for school videos because Matt Grain and grew up in that era. I don't know. Anyway, I got distracted by the technology. <laughs> I find it very chilling if I ever catch a glimpse of a modern Simpsons episode and they're like using a smartphone or have uh, a USB stick, and I'm just like, that's not what the Simpsons is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you don't watch the fucking Flintstones. Uh, <laughs> actually there's some amazing flintstones comics which are incredible and you need to read them because they are very much a modern they're a modern stone age family and um <laughs> it's all about like ps ptsd and warfare and like there's literally there's a gay couple called adam and steve <laughs> and um Fred is viewed as being very weird because he's monogamous. You know, it's like it's got, there's lots of social commentary. It's amazing. Anyway, back to Resident Evil. Okay, what the hell? <laughs> I didn't realize Flintstones was still a, a relevant thing, but I guess they made it relevant. They made it relevant. There has been a few years since that comic, but anyway, when are uh, when Jill and um, Wesker and like the rest of their team are moving through the woods with their torches on their guns and then the mansion is revealed. I just don't think I've ever been happier watching a Resident Evil film. Because <laughs> this is what we want. This is the PlayStation original cutscene mm-hmm. from um, FMV opening. The mansion looked a little bit small in the in the in the foyer, but it's still, you know. Why did you hate this film, Harry? The, the, the foyer was too small. <laughs> you uh, sound like a bad estate agent. I know. But, you know. It's a very cosy lobby. We, I remember when the first Resident Evil live action film came out, and you've got that like 30 seconds before Mila Rodriguez bursts through the windows and, and with her team, and Colin Salmon appear and everything. And there's that one bit which is in a mansion. You think, oh, imagine if the whole film was like this. And while the whole film of Welcome to Raccoon City isn't this, it's still nice to just be in a fucking mansion <laughs> with, with <laughs> creepy ass paintings everywhere. And I, it's still quite fuzzy, as I said, as to uh, I guess all the people here were scientists from the lab? Question mark. I just. I don't know. It just—I didn't get a sense that any of the zombies were like people who lived in a mansion. You know, <laughs> maybe they were all like hiring it from Proto Airbnb, yeah. and they were—they were having a, a murder mystery party. <laughs> a mur- zombie and B be really good. Um... <laughs> yeah, so they—they they all kind of like converge in the Umbrella Lab, and Birkin's there um, retrieving his G virus samples while his wife and daughter are kind of like looking at this live autopsy that he's sort of like oh yeah that was something i was going to finish off later i've got too many emails to finish it though (laughs) west just shows up birkin and west just shoot each other then birkin's wife Anne, i think pulls out a gun as well because west is not completely dead and then west just shoots her and then 
he is about to maybe shoot Sherry, the daughter, because she's got the gun now. And then Jill shows up and shoots Wesker. Mm. And Wesker says, I wasn't really going to shoot her, really. I'm not going to shoot a child, honestly. And then sort of dies, question yeah. mark. It's kind of confusing Mexican standoff, but at different points. At like four so or grab five... a ticket and have a go at shooting Wesker. <laughs> I was thinking it's going to be like a wet sponge, not an actual gun. <laughs> but, um, this film, I think on like four or five separate occasions, someone's being attacked and then is saved at the last second by somebody else with a gun. And it got quite repetitive. I think it's always a zombie or maybe Irons is being attacked by a dog in the car park or just all the time. Yeah, but uh, so I was surprised that Wesker appeared to be killed. But, I mean, he in the game, he survived being torn up by a tyrant. So I'm sure he could pull through this. He's, he's had worse. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Birkin, in order to like stay alive as uh, as you know one inevitably does takes the first bit of g virus he can get his hands on if you were if you were lying mutates if you were taking your last breath rory and you had g virus in your hand would you would you die or would you uh have a bit of fun i've come this far why not okay he seems to be having a good time when he's got the g virus coursing through his veins and making eyeballs pop out in places yeah. where eyeballs so, are one not so again, to do. One thing I've always missed from the films is the iconic sort of William Birkin monster with the giant eye coming out of his shoulder. And I think even with the original Resident Evil 2 game, you see this thing and you're like, an eye shouldn't be there. <laughs> it's so gross. And I really like the design here because he's just got this one eye walking around, walking, one eye sort of looking around and then all these little postulates around it it's properly gross and a kind of great i think it's just brilliant it seems slightly anticlimactic i mean when the film ends you realize oh wait, the big thing was they're chased around a supply room for a bit by a monster and then got on a train <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a bit different from like nuclear bombs going off wiping out entire cities that showdown where it's like birkin stalking Chris around a basement um, and sort of like taunting him and teasing him about, I don't know, being an orphan or something. I can't remember exactly. Um, and then, yeah, saved at the last moment by Claire, who uh, is like, stay away from my brother. But then I like to sort of Chris's kiss off line where his like big kiss off line to Burton is shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. Again, I like, you know, I think that's just my level. I'm not clever enough. Or just if I ever encountered a zombie, I'll be like, "Fuck you, poo poo head." <laughs> but yeah, they all get on the train, and um, and then the countdown because we six a.m. arrives, and we cut to <laughs> exterior Raccoon City and the cow in the foreground. And <laughs> I actually, the only time I laughed out loud at the top of my lungs was like when I think Raccoon City sort of um, implodes. And sends a just a regular moo cow flying off into the foreground. <laughs> That's a choice. So they just imagine like the director is like, I, I need this cow here. I need to spend just a little bit more money to get this cow for a scale. Otherwise, people will just think it's a puddle. So we need a cow for scale. Yeah, that was that. Okay, so I said that all the choices made were good choices. <laughs> the one choice I categorically like, you have an issue with, I see. 
yeah, I, I haven't quite decided. I haven't fallen one way or the other on whether the cow was a good idea or I'm not. I'm not sure. See, I'm not sure that making like a big hole in the ground is going to get rid of your infection. I, I always thought like you'd use a nuke because it's the only way to be sure, to paraphrase aliens again. Um, I don't think it's going to solve all the problems. <laughs> Well, it seems to satisfy Umbrella because they hmm. type a report on the screen. Again, a little bit like, I don't know, uh, Escape from New York style in terms of how like the text looks and things. I think but it's it a reports to the that's... original game as well. Okay, but it sort of reports survivors zero, like really confidently. Yeah. And it's wrong because we see that we see our heroes walking out of a smoky tunnel. We see there's at least five <laughs> survivors. Yeah, again, setting it up for more adventures. And then, of course, we get that mid credit sequence again. And I actually realized, I, I know we, we said, oh, it's Ada Wong. But we see the trench coat when Wesker's like, where am I? What's going on? And I thought, wouldn't it be awesome if that was Mila Jovovich in a trench coat? <laughs> and she was like, she could be just playing a different character, you know? But still, it would have been, I think she even wears a trench coat in the Resident Evil uh, Paul Davis Anderson movie. I don't know. It would be funny, yeah, if it's just like I didn't get your name. It's just like my name is Alice. Oh my and I re- god! And I remember everything. Oh my god, that sounds so good. And I know. I mean, the executive producers includes Paul Davis Anderson. I think isn't Mijovovich one as well. I don't know about that, but it's made by like Constantine Film and it's Davis Films. And I, I don't, again, it's actually producer is very much like, I think, a very nominal credit. Like they don't have to do anything, no, but because no, of course. he probably he probably had to just like tick a box or get a check. And he was like, yeah, fine, do it. Much yeah. the way John Carpenter cashes his remake of his movie checks. He's just like, I love the fact that I keep remaking my movies. Yep. I get more money. Yeah. So, Resident Evil, welcome to Raccoon City. Did it need to exist? Unclear. I'm sure the shareholders of the... Of the Umbrella Corporation. Umbrella Corporation. So every time we try and make a film extolling the virtues of our bioweapons division, it ends up in one of these films. Um, yeah. I, I, no publicity is bad publicity. Yeah, no publicity is bad publicity. So, as I mentioned, I, as a Resident Evil fan, had a good old time. Um, I don't know how long it's going to stay with me. I do want to watch it some more. But it actually felt like a bit of a breath of fresh air, not only for the franchise, but just to see this sort of grungy homage to kind of like 80s and maybe early 90s um, sort of siege horror films. And I was at various points, you know, there's bits where they're going down to the basement and I think, is there going to be a giant crocodile down here? I don't know. And that's exciting not to know. It's just quite refreshing not to have like Alice, bless her, kicking ass and taking names. It felt nice to have characters which felt kind of legitimately on the back foot a bit. So, and again, is that tone I mentioned? It's this felt a bit dangerous, a bit grungy. It reminded me of how I felt when I first encountered Resident Evil. So for all its kind of faults, I think it's something to be applauded. Yeah, I mean, I I think I liked it more than you and I don't have as many sort of issues and things in terms of I, I did like the cast. I did like the performances. I like what it did with that. And yeah, I, I just felt like a, a, 
good, fun, uh, gritty horror movie, you know? And, and yeah, like the John Carpenter influence is strong in terms of this, you know, Assault on Precinct 13. And I think it's it's safe to say it's maybe the best video game horror movie since Silent Hill? Question mark? I feel like the Resident Evil films which have come before well, are kind of more like party films and they're easier to flip on. I think this is better than Silent Hill. I think this feels like an actual horror film. In fact, it's funny because I know for all its homages to the video games, uh, this this didn't feel like a video game movie. And I know that's quite an unquantifiable thing. But I don't know, there's just something about it. It felt like more of a homage to that era of horror films than to video games, you know? Yeah, I, I, I'm I looking forward to um, picking it up on Blu-ray and, and stuff, because uh, I think I would like to immerse myself in it again. And yeah, maybe on second viewing and things like, uh, I'll have gotten off the initial sort of like peak high of seeing, oh, it's Resident Evil on the big screen and it looks like it's supposed to mostly kind of... font, you know, that big chunky Resident Evil font from the games. So yeah, it, it's it's maybe like, maybe I am, I've drunk the, the Umbrella Kool-Aid and I'm <laughs> sort of like filled with Resident Evil nostalgia and, and stuff and the scales will fall from my eyes eventually and I'll be like, oh no, it's just the same trash as ever. But hey, right now I hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, I hope it doesn't happen. And right now I'm I'm lapping it up. So, like like the like the bloody mess left on the roads. You're the Doberman licking it up, being like nom 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 nom. Yep. Which happens in this woof, film. Woof. We've not mentioned it, but that's <laughs> I like seeing how a zombie dog is made. It's not like a zombie stumbling up to like a a dog somehow falling upon the dog and then the, being, and the zombie being able to take a bite at the dog. This is just a yeah. dog which can't resist human blood. <laughs> With that mid credit sequence, I kind of thought, well, what they might do next with how it's positioned with Wester and Ada would be possibly, if they were going to smush two games together, an amalgamation of Code Veronica and Resident Evil 4. Yeah. And it does seem like um, Johannes Roberts has said he would look to maybe doing a Code Veronica adaptation next and then followed by a Resident Evil 4 adaptation if that's how the trajectory of this will go. Um, box office takings and all that kind of stuff, depending, I suppose. But yeah, I can definitely see, you know, these films going in that direction, largely down to that uh, mid-credits tease. Mm, I'd love to see a Resident Evil Code Veronica film. Um, that's my statement on that. <laughs> but um, regardless, we will be doing, I'm sure, more Resident Evil content next year. Uh, but in the meantime, how can people keep in touch with games on film? You can find more information about video game movies and largely Resident Evil video game movies and the podcast on our website, gamesonfilm.witsites.com slash podcast. We're also on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at GamesOnFilmPod. And you can contact us, GamesOnFilmPod at gmail.com. On our website are links for ways you can support us. And the podcast is available wherever you get your podcast, be it Spotify, Acast, 
Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, so please do like, rate, review, share, and subscribe. I'm on Twitter at Rory Steele. I'm at Only Man Who Can. And the music for this episode was composed by David Lightfoot. Uh, Harry, do you have anything you'd like to plug? <laughs> no, you've, you've, you've not asked me that in a long time. <laughs> well, I'd just like to give a shout out that my wife, Lisa, worked on a film called Ron's Gone Wrong oh, yes. all last year in the pandemic. It came out at cinemas uh, about a month or two ago, and it will be on Disney Plus from the 15th of December. Nice. So if you'd like a lovely, nice family adventure animated comedy with Zach Galifianakis as a robot, mm-hmm. then please do watch that. Shout out to Ron's Gone Wrong. Yep. We're all about tech companies releasing products into the wild, which may or may not cause problems <laughs> on this podcast. Oh, I actually saw the film at my local Odin because Odin was showing it. Well done. Well done, Odin. But yes, do do that. Um, until we meet again, I've been Harry. I've been Rory. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was too close. You were almost a Jill sandwich.